0: Well, hello, this is Colin. Welcome back from your weekend, assuming weekends are now discernible from the rest of the week, which is still an open question for a lot of people. So, you know, the first shows of the week, and we've been doing this for a long time, uh, we've decided to devote to not just COVID-19, but to the medical science behind COVID-19, to what we know at a level of epidemiology or microbiology. So we've been having an awful lot of scientists on. I should also tell you that we're not going to do a live show next Monday, so you may have to personally contact a microbiologist, a virologist, or an epidemiologist. We can provide phone numbers. But today we're going to do that. And then in the second half of the show, we've been talking about getting this guy for a while. Lawrence Wright, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction writer, wrote a novel called The End of October, which posits a pandemic, which posits actually a more ferocious pandemic than the one we are currently experiencing, uh, and then watches it unfold across the world, a world that is plagued by other problems as well, just as we are right now. So uh, that's to come. But right now we are very fortunate to have Michael Minna, an assistant professor of epidemiology and faculty member at the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And he is the author of Real Epidemiologists Don't Shake Hands. Actually, he's not the author of that book. I just made that up. But it would be a really good name for uh, a title for a book. And I actually stole it from a New York Times article. All right, Michael Minow, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks very much. Happy to be here.
0: So um, let's sort of begin with what we can look at uh, in terms of, uh, of the success Uh, of stay-at-home policies, social distancing, shutdowns. We have new studies coming out all the time which essentially try to estimate what was accomplished by doing this. Um, There's a study published today in Nature that uh, says that across six countries, something on the order of 62 million uh, confirmed cases uh, were prevented or delayed. Um, I mean, I think it is fair to say, based on that and other studies, that, that what we have done so far, although not perfect, has been surprisingly successful, or at least maybe unsurprisingly successful? I'll, I'll let you decide.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that um, I would fall into the unsurprisingly successful camp. Uh, we anticipated that if we could social distance, uh, that this would uh, lead to reduced transmission of the virus. Um, the piece that was surprising was just how well people chose to social distance and how seriously they took it across the country in many, many areas, and frankly, across the world. Um, so I think that uh, once we saw that that was happening, and this was sort of late March, uh, we, we a lot of places went into social distancing, it became uh, readily apparent that we were going to see gains in terms of reduced transmission uh, I would say, if anything, the gains haven't been. We still see some areas with increasing numbers of cases. Of course, that's confounded a bit by increased testing. So we're looking harder, if you will. Uh, but we uh, unfortunately still see that the U.S., unlike some other places, has sort of gotten into this plateau uh, of, of cases that that are not seeming to abate. Now, the good thing is we did turn the curve over, and so we're we're kind of flatlining now in terms of the numbers of new cases per day. But I think a lot of us would have also liked to see the, the numbers uh, continue to, to drop a little bit more quickly than they have been.
0: Yeah. And one number that is not testing dependent is deaths and deaths have also plateaued. It's around a thousand a day, which is not a number I think anybody would want to live with. Uh, You know, we're going to wind up closer to 200,000 deaths by Labor Day if we just stay at that thousand death or or sort of fluctuating between 800 and 1200, whatever. Um, And, and, even all of the plateaus, aren't they a little bit deceptive? It looks like a plateau. On the other hand, what's really happening is it's going down in certain areas that have uh, maybe weathered the initial assault and instituted a lot of social distancing measures and up in the areas that are kind of fooling around with relaxing restrictions. So it's not a real plateau, is it?
1: No, that's exactly correct. Uh, this is a very heterogeneous virus. We found that even within, I'm, I'm here in Boston, and we find that even within Boston, we have some areas during the peak of it that were hit very hard, and some areas that, that skated away um, with very few cases. And, uh, and now we're seeing the same thing at the national level, where we have some places where this virus continues to increase and is even coming back, maybe with more cases. Uh, and then other areas that are continuing to take social distancing seriously uh, and and we're and in those places we have seen increasing reductions and in Massachusetts, for example, we continue to see reduced cases per populace over over time and we're hoping to get down to about two per hundred thousand, which would be I think a number we're looking to get to. but as you mentioned there are some areas of the country that are increasing and overall this is turning out to at a national level, make it look like it's at equilibrium or sort of a a plateau. But the the individual dynamics within different locations is is quite uh, heterogeneous
0: So another problem, and it's a problem for you, I think, probably not you specifically, but for epidemiologists, uh, at a, a kind of tactical level, and it's a problem in real life, too. Two things are happening simultaneously. Uh We are having the reopening uh, of states all around the country. I mean, Connecticut, which has been pretty careful and conservative, as is now starting to reopen stuff and is going to reopen more stuff. And so as an epidemiologist, you'd want to look at that and say, OK, so three, four weeks out, you know, are we noticing really significant changes? Uh, but layered on top of that now are widespread national protests in which people are brought together in less well controlled situations in larger crowds some of those people get arrested and put in cells where they're really uh, packed together so i mean this is kind of a coldly statistical question about a vitally important thing but are you at all confident that you'll be able to figure out which cause which problem in other words you know, will you'll be able to separate the the spikes that might have been caused by protest proximity from the spikes caused by reopening?
1: It's a very good question. I, I think that the way that we need to approach this question, because it is, as you say, it's in, extraordinarily important uh, to understand what the causes of any increased cases are. It, we should really uh, approach all of this. Uh, also, not to sound too cold about the numbers, but in a very scientific way. We have some areas that are opening up and some areas that have protests and some areas that are doing both or none. And we can use the diversity of these types of, uh, of the, the differences that we're seeing across the country and across different states and towns within those states to, um, to our advantage from an epidemiological perspective to understand more about what drives this virus forward, and uh, and so I think that we can tease the, this apart and try to understand uh, whether what role, if any, the protests are going to have in terms of increased transmission. What role, if any, increased uh, 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 increased workforces and in getting the labor force back to work is having with with increased transmission of the virus. And we'll be able to use epidemiological tools and mathematical models to better um, pull those apart and understand, uh, potentially use this as an opportunity to understand what drives transmission more than other things. And that can be useful for us in the future to understand how best to control this, in particular when the fall hits, when we expect uh, in September and October to see pretty large increases in transmission, again, as a result of the of fall coming on us.
0: One tool you could use, and we talked about this a week or two ago, two weeks ago, I think, with Greg Gonsalves, uh, is um, this kind of new understanding that wastewater uh, contains an awful lot of clues and, and actually has a predictive power. Wastewater seems to be kind of like five to seven days ahead. Sewage is really what I'm talking about. Five to seven days ahead of the, the kind of hard statistics you'll get later uh, on on diagnosed cases. Uh, and now I think 400 different wastewater treatment facilities have joined a program run by something called Biobot Analytics uh, to, to look at that. So, I mean, as you do try to uh, to tease out what, co- what was caused by what, y- you do have this kind of interesting tool that's it's not just community specific. I suppose it's going to be treatment plant specific.
1: That's that's correct. It will be these biobots are uh they're they're essentially little robots that you can lower down into sewers, you can put at sewage plants, treatment facilities, all these different places. Uh you could even put them outside of, you know, in the in the central piping, uh leaving a particular company. If a company wanted to have a Biobot installed to understand if there's anyone transmitting virus within their community or their business. Uh, And so these, uh, I think that what you're seeing here is the beginning of, uh, of a new approach to public health, one that can use new technologies that's not focused on our traditional approaches, which is usually wait until a certain number of people get into the hospital before you declare an outbreak happening. Here we can really use some new sensors, such as looking for viral particles in the sewage, because this virus lives in our GI system, in our gut. Uh, when, we, when we go to the bathroom, essentially, we release viruses, and those can be detected by these biobots in, this, in the sewage. Uh, and so it's a good thing that they're robots and not humans being lowered down into, into these sewers. Uh, but there's also other techniques as well. We could start looking, we could really monitor uh, the blood supply of blood donors to look at how many people are developing new antibodies at any given time and use that as a sensor to understand where transmission is occurring. So what we're seeing as a result of the massive disruptions and and mortality that's been associated with this virus, we're seeing real technological innovation. And the BioBot, I think, is a terrific example of of how crises can accelerate technologies that just recently seemed a little bit goofy and now have really gained steam to, to, to show just how important these types of tools can be.
0: So when you study a disease, obviously, when you study it in real time, you're trying to provide the public with public health information in real time. What is this disease? How does it spread? How transmissible is it? How dangerous is it? How many people are dying from it? But, you know, the numbers are probably a little bit more blunt than you would like to have long term about this disease, especially given the fact that this disease functions in ways that are very idiosyncratic, even within the world of viruses. And what we tend to see, what we tend to wind up knowing, are um, you know PCR positive diagnostic tests. Uh, we know uh, new detected cases through that. We know, know new hospitalizations because that's relatively easy to document. We know deaths because there's something you know fairly arguable about death. But, you know, the more that I learn about this disease, the more that I realize there's like a whole other body count, and that's people who are not getting better from it, who are substantially and probably chronically impaired from it, who 60, 70, 90 days out uh, are still having some of the symptoms of the disease. They may be PCR negative, but they are not well. You know, they they unload the dishwasher and they have to go lie down for 30 minutes, or, you know, they have breathing problems or whatever. And my sense is that that's going to take you longer to get a count on, longer to be able to report in any reliable way. But maybe you could comment.
1: That's that's correct. Um, we have to monitor some individuals long-term. And there are certainly uh, individuals, they're not a majority. In fact, the majority of people are asymptomatic and mm-hmm. not, not having much disease, if any, at all. But then there's this whole of people who are getting very severely ill and this virus, one of the things we know about it is just how devastating it can be to the lungs for people who get very severe lung infections. It can, it does a lot of damage. It destroys the lung tissue. And when you rebuild that lung tissue, it can sometimes scar as a result of inflammation and healing, just like we get scars on our arms and legs if we get cut. And, uh, and that can, result in long-term consequences to this vi- from this virus in terms of breathing problems uh and other physiological issues and i think at this point it's really a, a waiting game uh to understand more and more about how long some of the consequences are lasting in certain people and and will they recover back to baseline i think our expectation is many people even who are still feeling symptomatic after Uh, a month or two, which again is a small number, but it's an important number. Uh, We hope that they will, that they'll ultimately recover back to baseline in time. Uh, But some people really get hit very, very hard, especially people who are more vulnerable or for other reasons are immunosuppressed, people who have cancer, for example. Uh, And So it can be a a devastating uh, disease for these people. And I think it's an important area of research that runs the risk of being uh, underfunded just because the numbers of individuals are not great. But I think it's absolutely crucial that we ensure that we are um, providing the right healthcare and and monitoring these individuals to understand the long-term consequences of this virus.
0: Hey, are you okay for a couple more minutes or do you need to get going? I know you're on a
1: schedule today. Yep, I can go for a few more minutes. Okay. So there's another group of people
0: who are also very confusing to clinicians. And these are people who symptomatically seem to have improved, but are PCR positive for 60, 70. I think there's even been 90 days. Uh, They're having the nasal swab 90 days out from their uh, first report, and and they're still positive. Uh, And, you know, then the question becomes, what do you do with that person? You can't really send a PCR positive person back into the community or certainly back to the nursing home that you took them out of or but on the other hand you know a lot of virologists seem very skeptical over the fact that the pcr which is really detecting genetic material is really detecting uh, a, a an actual workable virus so maybe say a little bit about that it's an epidemiological problem right what do you do with that person if you don't really know
1: that's it's really a very good question and One that I think we need to be focused very heavily on uh, as a medical community and as infectious disease physicians and laboratorians. Uh, uh, And so, as you said, some people will remain positive with this virus for a long time. But there's a very important distinction that hasn't quite made its way into the common lexicon about this virus. And and even amongst clinicians, there is a real... uh, uh, Most people don't understand this, that this virus likely... Uh, it's actually not too uncommon for viruses to linger in terms of, to have their RNA, the nucleic acids or their genome, linger uh, in people for a long period of time, but long after any transmitting virus exists. We see it in measles, for example. Um, Six months after a kid gets measles, you can still detect some of the measles virus, even though they haven't been transmitting for five and a half months. And, And the same thing I think is happening here. So we have to be very careful about how we are using these tests and how, uh, how, what type of, uh, what, how we're interpreting them. If we see somebody who has very low viral load but is still positive for days and days and days, you know, it might we might find that that person can actually go back to work and and is actually not transmitting but just still harbors some of these. Um, non-viable virus particles in there in the respiratory tract that are getting detected because our tests are so sensitive. So we have to keep it in mind. And, and I think that this is why clinicians uh, often say, you know, the test is never the end-all be-all piece. You have to place every test result in the larger clinical context of what a patient appears to look like and make decisions based on that. And, I, and this is a good example of where clinical acumen and getting to know your patient And their course of disease is extraordinarily important.
0: But it also seems like something that needs to be studied in vitro on a really large scale, right? You should be able to take some of that potential inoculum and and see in, in a controlled setting whether or not it's infectiously viable. Uh, I I mean, yeah, having a good clinical grasp on how your actual patient is doing is terrific. But it's still a little bit of the roll of the dice. If you don't understand, what's the mechanism? At what point? Is this in fact, inert? That's,
1: that's true. And we're doing that both in humans, for example, we can take, uh, we can take virus out of people when they have different um, reported viral loads from the test and look to see, is there any live virus still existing? Uh, and a lot of the time, actually, we see in these individuals who have sort of this residual signal of positivity that the virus is not actually alive anymore. And so we have been uh, that we're developing thresholds above which or below which I should say on the viral load scale. Uh, it's very likely that the, that the virus is no longer actually living. And it's just sort of a positive signal that's getting detected. So those studies are ongoing, but I should. But I would say that they have been. Uh, a little bit slower to get going than some of the other more pressing questions that came first. Um, But now we're seeing that because people stay so positive so long sometimes that we have to figure out, you know, can this person go back to work or do they have to stay home in an isolation for up to 90 days, as you said. And, And it becomes a very crucial set of questions.
0: Okay, last question. Um, There's a terrific piece in the upshot today, and you may be in this for all I know. It's when 511 epidemiologists expect to fly, hug, etc. And I'm not going to walk you through all that stuff. But I want you to have a chance right now just to talk about things that you really don't want people to do yet. So this thing asked questions about, you know, going on an an airplane, attending a small dinner party, uh, going to a dine-in restaurant. Are there certain things that you just think people may be in too much of a rush to do?
1: I think um, flying is one item, is one activity that if it can be avoided, which many times it can, uh, just the whole, the whole mechanism, uh, everything from getting onto the plane, sitting on the plane, uh, it is uh, a very high risk setting. There are so many people that pack around uh, a, a terminal. that that these kinds of areas, they're indoors, they're not usually the best ventilated places uh, in terms of the airport. These are the kinds of places that I think it's absolutely crucial to try to avoid if it's not necessary. Um, But things like sitting outside for a picnic with friends, I think as population prevalence of the virus goes down and keeps going down, the risk of each of these individual events becomes lower as well, and I think everyone should start uh, should really be making decisions about how they interact with their social circles and their families a little bit based on monitoring what's happening in their in their immediate communities. If there's a lot of cases around, then maybe that's a time not to have that dinner party outside. But if there hasn't been a case in your town for for a month and a half then, you know, the risk of of it of have somebody in your dinner party outside having it and transmitting it is pretty darn low. And so, so we can start looking at these types of community-level prevalence patterns to understand what are the risks we should and can take.
0: All right. Perfect place to end. Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology, faculty member at the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. Thanks for being with us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back. This is exciting. I've been a fan of this guy for a really long time, and uh, I grabbed his book when it came out, and it scared the living daylights out of me. Get
1: infected, or oh, maybe you How we gonna tell who infected who I'm washing my hands every night and day Can
2: somebody tell me
0: All right, we're back. Uh, And uh, so we're going to not really shift gears very far, but some from fact to fiction although fiction with an awful lot of facts in it. Uh, Lawrence Wright is an author, screenwriter, playwright, uh, staff writer for The New Yorker. His book, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda, and the Road to 9-11, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 2007. I've read that book, and it is uh, fascinating. Uh, I've also read, or technically listened to as an audiobook, his most recent book, The End of October, which is, in fact, a novel about a pandemic. A worse pandemic than we are so far having. But all the same, uh, this book was released it, just in lockstep, really, with the outbreak uh, of COVID-19. So we're going to talk to him about this. He's probably getting a little tired of some of these questions, but Lawrence Wright, welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me. <clears throat> So well, I get I get a lot of ideas for projects I'm going to do when the director, Ridley Scott, will just call me up and say, you know, what about this? What about that? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I'll say, you know, I just don't think that's really worth my going into. Uh, but this is actually really how you got started on this, right? That's a pretty classy way to begin. Ridley Scott suggested this idea to
2: you? Yeah, yeah. He had read Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, which is this post-apocalyptic novel of a father and son wandering through the ruins of civilization. And Ridley's question was, well, what happened? Because, you know, Cormac doesn't explain it. And uh, Ridley's an action director, so he wanted to know, you know, how would this happen? And that was the original genius of the idea. Uh, I wrote the script. He never made it. Uh, I set it aside. And, but I never set the idea. Uh, you know, I was always intrigued by the idea. What could cause civilization to crumble? What force was so powerful that you know it would simply break apart? And I thought maybe maybe a pandemic, uh, something on the order of the nineteen eighteen flu. Would we be any better prepared than our ancestors were?
0: Right, and so we need to talk uh, quite a bit about uh, all that. So the the, the medical crisis. Well, first of all, let me just back up and say to listeners right now, do not at this time in your life read The Road by Cormac McCarthy. All right, you can read the end of October <laughs> and you can maybe read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Do not read The Road. I will tell you when it's safe to read The Road, but it's not a good time to do that right now. Uh, one of the things that obviously is the case with your book. And it, it resembles reality also in the sense that that the disease crisis is is layered on top of several other international crises that have little or less to do uh, with the disease. Um, we're having a little bit of that in America right now. But I mean, I think it's fair to say Congolese flu, the thing that we're dealing with in the end of October, uh, is a much more ferocious enemy than COVID has been so far. But as you've watched this virus uh, unfold, having just lived so close with the subject, as you were writing the book, what what did that feel like? Well, it's totally bizarre. Uh, you know, i
2: I interviewed a lot of experts and so on, they all expected that there would be another pandemic. And so I, I I'm sure that the novel reflects a lot of the anxiety that I ran into in in talking to these people. But uh, so it was in some ways I I wanted it to be a thriller, but I also saw it as a kind of warning cry, and uh, and you know, but then to have it coincide directly with the publication of the novel is is eerie and unsettling.
0: Well, I would imagine. I I will say that uh, my—I think I grabbed the book off of uh, Audible, maybe the first day it was available— even so, at that point, I'd been seriously geeking out about microbiology and virology and epidemiology in a way that I never had before. Not at your level, mind you, but I'd really been spending a lot of time with yeah. it. So, as you're one of the things that you try to do in this book is to have your protagonist Henry in, through his own thought process and his conversation with other professionals kind of educate the reader uh about a whole bunch of things that Prior to February or March of 2020, the average reader wouldn't have thought about it at all. In a way, I found Henry talking about stuff that I just listened to on this week in virology or something. You know, <laughs> it was it's kind of interesting that way that your your some of your readers are probably a little bit more up to speed on this than you might have expected.
2: I had no idea that you had been drawn into that field, but isn't it interesting? I mean, I I found I, I just. I know that the novel is dark and bleak in many respects, but for me, there was quite a lot of joy in researching it and just being in the company of these brilliant minds. And uh, it's such a fascinating field. You know, the whole, you know, the world of virology is one that we know very little about. And, uh, you know, all these diseases are, well, not all of them are diseases, but they're, you know, they're, they're, there are trillions of viruses, and we only know about a handful
0: Oh, yeah. I I found it actually very comforting and and in a way that's clear to me that, you know, you you were very inspired by the real life people that you studied to write this book. And I I had the same experience when I first started listening to This Week in Virology, just suddenly realizing that, you know, there's a researcher named Susan Weiss who's been studying coronaviruses for like 40 years. Uh You know, just because I only heard about him two weeks ago doesn't mean there isn't this incredible cohort uh, of people uh, from the From the microbiological level up to the public health level, trying to get us ready for all this, although knowing that and watching this unfold. And, and admiring those people, as you do. I mean, your, your hero in this book is, is one of these people who spent his whole life going into hot zones, dealing with really scary situations. It must have been a little depressing to watch the U.S. response, which, you know, at the, at the federal level has been pretty incompetent, bordering on non-existent.
2: Well, it's tragic. It's tragic. upsetting. Uh, it's very upsetting. Uh, you know, we the U.S. has about four percent of the world's population and, and a quarter of all the deaths. It's just unnerving to think about how badly we bungled it. And you know, I, I, as a reporter, I have done stories which have taken me to the Center for Disease Control in the past. Such a great agency once upon a time, uh, and it's it stumbled so badly uh, at in this particular. Uh, outbreak, and at the cost of many lives, you know, the fact that they were unable to uh, get the test out, uh, you know, they contaminated their first effort. Uh, This is something that, uh, you know, was one of the the jewels of American government. It was looked upon as the gold standard by health agencies all over the world. And uh, I, I don't know when or how they're going to reclaim their primacy, but it's very depressing to watch. And then, of course, the administration had been given a briefing book about what to do in the case of a pandemic. Uh, there are tabletop exercises all the time at places like Johns Hopkins that lay out the scenarios. Uh, I use them, I mean, you know, they were very useful to me. So there were people working for the government that knew what to do and what was going to happen. And to see everybody just improvising, uh, you know, the, the federal government absconding any kind of, you know, responsibility and leaving it to the governors. And in many cases, the governor's leaving it to the mayors and everybody's just you know, fumbling in the dark. And, and that's why our fatality rate is so high.
0: Yeah, I would say let me let me offer this characterization, and then you you tell me what you think of it. I, I would say, in some ways, your uh, your novel maybe underestimates the capacity of the average American to understand. With not a great messaging system coming from the federal government, and would understand what needs to be done, uh, what social distancing amounts to, what self isolation uh, amounts to, and to do it at least in a lot of states and communities rather successfully, it kind of uh, you kind of m- maybe guessed a little bit low on that, and guessed a little bit high on on how good. Uh, the CDC uh, would be, uh, although things go downhill so fast in your book that the CDC barely gets more than a couple of bites of the apple before we're, we're you know, we're over that line anyway. But it, it people kind of did a little bit better than you might have guessed.
2: Yeah, it's totally true. I, I, I underestimated the willingness of individuals to sequester themselves for months uh, at great personal sacrifice, financial, emotional, spiritual, you know, you know it's, it's hard. This has been a difficult period of time for so many Americans and an impoverishing one uh, and, and a depressing one. So in all of that, individuals took on. Uh, governments behaved pretty much as I expected uh, or worse and uh you know it, you're right to say that you know my hero worked at the cdc and so you know that was the world that i placed him in uh he embodied the the courage and ingenuity that i had found uh, among so many of the public health officials that i talked to
0: right uh, and and we should say by the way that from now on Lawrence Wright should be forced to release release synopses of anything that he writes uh, <laughs> because they kind of have this alarming uh, habit of coming true and I found myself thinking over the last six or seven days particularly I would say a week ago today Lawrence Wright when the president of the United States turned loose this kind of weirdly unlabeled blended together group of paramilitary people including park police and secret service and DHS agents and God knows what else to clear the streets of peaceful pr- protesters so that he could take a walk, I thought, oh, so the end of October and the siege are happening at the same time. You wrote the, <laughs> you wrote the screenplay for a movie called The Siege, where something like that happens, right?
2: Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's a really amusing comparison. Uh, yeah, I, I, there, are, there are things that I imagined, uh, you know. I, first, let me, you know, a lot of people have talked about how prescient I am. And for the most part, that's, you know, it's just research. You know, I talked to people that, um, you know, that knew what would happen. They told me, and I wrote it down in my novel. And and, uh, so the fact that events are unrolling in many of them that are very, very similar to what I wrote is not a you know, it's, it's not prophecy, but there are things that I anticipated that, you know, geopolitical relationships and governmental actions, for instance, where I just looked at the world that we live in and all the fractures in our society and, you know, the rivalries and so on. And I thought, add stress to that, then the pandemic is the stressor. And what would happen? And so, honestly, I want these parallels, these coincidences to stop because it, <laughs> it uh, it's unnerving to see things that I guessed at, made to stab at, you know, come alarmingly close to being realized.
0: Right. I mean, either that or very quickly write a book. Where uh, a Democrat overturns a Republican president in a November election, because in case we're in some kind of Twilight Zone episode where everything you write comes true, you should be careful about that. But in a more serious way, um, you know, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that as we come out on the other side of this, whenever that is, when the vaccine comes or whatever, Presumably, we will understand that we have to plan better. We have to staff up in a lot of these areas like public health and epidemiology and get the CDC back to being the gold standard that it was. And we'll also have to sort of think about the this and th- there will be panels and, and uh, panels upon panels upon commissions. And one thing that I have been thinking about a little bit, and this isn't just to suck up to you, but... I think these panels should have imaginers on them. You know, obviously they should have biotech and policy experts, but you know, we've done several shows about this. We found a 2015 story called So Much Cooking by a, a writer, Naomi Kritzer, who imagines a pandemic where people are confined at home, obsessing about food a- a availability and bread baking, you know, in Contagion. In that movie, Lawrence Fishburne, for example, uses the term social distancing. I mean, there's tons of ways in which he's imagined that out in a way that's similar to some of the stuff that you've done. Even in the Will Smith f- uh, film, I Am Legend, there's, a little brief scene that indicates toilet paper hoarding, um, and it just means it says to me that people who do this kind of thing, who try to imagine, you know, they they don't have public health degrees or epidemiology degrees, but what they are are people who who think what about what would happen, maybe in a way that a public health expert wouldn't think, mm-hmm. uh, maybe should be part of this conversation more than they typically are. I expect you to agree with this idea, but maybe you don't.
2: No, I do. I think it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I, and a lot of, uh, screenwriters were invited by the CIA after nine eleven to, uh, kind of invent scenarios because we, you know, they had not been able to, as I said, connect the dots. And, uh, because I had written the siege, which anticipated in some eerie way, uh, terrorism, you know, in New York, um, the uh, but I instead I just wrote an op-ed for The Times <laughs> uh, describing what I thought uh, they wanted me to describe what we should do with about bin Laden um, and I didn't particularly want to be seen as someone who was writing for the CIA but I, I think it is useful and I have done uh, the Pentagon was at some point put on uh, scenario plannings and it would bring in people from, different uh, walks of life from Silicon Valley and and some uh, creative writers uh, to envision future scenarios uh, given the rivalries that we already understand what could happen and I think it's very helpful. Uh, It's helpful for the you know the military brass that was sitting there and hearing some outsiders but it's also helpful for people like me to get into that world and, and See the constraints and that they're already dealing with, and try to imagine what it's like to be on their side of the table.
0: Absolutely. All right. We're going to grab a very quick break here. We're going to come back with more of Lawrence Wright. Uh, His uh, new novel, The End of October, uh, is about a pandemic more ferocious than the one that we're facing uh, and about a political structure that perhaps resembles too much the political structure we've had dealing with this one.
2: Struggle to protect yourself Only to be confused by the magnitude of the fury in the final
0: All right. We are back. Before we continue with Lawrence Wright, I need to thank cat Pastor. Kat Pastor is in the studio, making it possible for me to work remotely and for the producer of this episode, senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, to work remotely as well. Uh, tomorrow, we are actually going to catch our breaths a little bit. Uh, we're going to share with you a, a, an episode we did a, a while back about clouds. And I'm guessing you might actually find this this episode to be kind of a relief, given everything you've had to deal with in the last, say, two weeks or really three months. So um, so that that is to come. But thanks to everybody also who is who are all the people backing us up uh, in a million different ways on this show. So Lawrence Wright is with us. His new book is the end of October. It is a thriller. Uh, It has a, a pandemic in it. It has a world military conflagration and it. It has a disease spreading uh, at the Hajj. Uh, it has a really long submarine sequence, which I found fascinating, uh, and all kinds of other things as well. Um, so uh, if your, your nerves are strong, you should absolutely read this book. One of the other things that it has, Lawrence right, is an unnamed president who turns this um, response over uh, to an unnamed vice president uh, as sort of point person, so you got that right too. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things I found myself wondering today was, so you you and they kind of don't get it, and they really kind of don't get it. And I don't want to spoil anything, but. Let's just say, how can I put it, that uh, it's very possible that a president uh, might kind of jump the line and try to use an off-label or not ready for primetime medication a little too soon. Can you imagine that happening? Um, is there any part of you now that sort of fantasizes the other way? I find myself fantasizing, like, what if there was a president right now who kind of combined the voracious learning appetite of Bill Clinton with the no drama process orientation of Barack Obama? You know, what would it be like to watch the response happening if it really worked? Uh, I find that occupies more of my fantasies now than the Lawrence Wright version of what happens.
2: Well, I did re- reflect on the fact that the, the president in recent history that did pay attention to uh, the possibility of a pandemic was George W. Bush. Mm. And um, a lot of the, um, the you know, the storehouse for you know, emergency equipment and, you know, all the scenario planning and the briefing books were done under his administration. And I I so wish that history had afforded him the crisis he was prepared for Mm
0: -hmm. and not the one that he got. That's a really great point. So I'm also wondering, for you now, um, so much of this is stuff that you've gamed out in your head and you've had to live with, and as as I keep saying, it goes considerably worse than we assume it's going to go here. But what's your life like these days? I mean, I don't know, are, are you really... Uh, are you wiping down your groceries? <laughs> are yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like how how sort of worried and careful are you right now in your own life?
2: Yeah, beyond growing my hair, uh, well, I I'm pretty much you know uh, sheltered in place for a long time. It's very monotonous, um, and I'm eager to bring it to an end. But I, you know. I'm in the demographic where is, you know, we're the target of this disease and uh, my wife is immune compromised. And so I have to be careful. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the things that, you know, I keep score on myself to some extent about what I got right and what I got wrong. And one of the things that I've been impressed with, the, the things that really break society apart, you know, we are still able to get food. Now, wouldn't be you know if there were a higher rate of infection uh, and more m- mortality, then that food chain might be ha- have been broken. Uh, you know the ATMs. You know if the, if you take those two things away, I think society really does begin to crater. And you know this, we're really lucky in the fact that we have been able to keep people fed, and and uh, and. These improv you know the the way in which we now have zoom meetings and so on there, there's a, a whole community that is uh, more intimately involved with each other than they could otherwise be uh, and I think the uh, you know venmo and all these improv- uh, these new things for new to me uh, have allowed the economy to go along and I, I think you know, in many ways, people have reacted very creatively to the confinements that they're having to endure.
0: You know, um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, mostly in terms of detective fiction, is how much detective fiction is based on competence, right? There's always a competent person. That's the reason you're paying attention in the first yeah. place. I mean, Sherlock Holmes being the ultimate example of this. But even I started rewatching The Wire for obviously reasons, but it's predicated on the idea that there's a few people within the Baltimore Police Department who get it, who figured it out, who are more competent than other people. And that's very true with your novel, too. Henry Parsons uh, and a couple of other characters get at it and they're not always being listened to and i i but in and in real life that's kind of happening right i mean you know there's the whole reopening thing is kind of brought up and your uh, your you're it's right there in the title for god's sakes uh, yeah. and and it it does seem as though not that there's a one to one mapping of henry your character onto anthony fauci or redfield or anybody else but it's a little weird the way we're not listening to those highly competent people. I know.
2: And it's, you know, at our peril, Uh, you know, they, they understand how contagion works. They understand the dangers. I think individuals have been listening to them, but oftentimes I think that, you know, elected officials have been responding to the rather urgent and understandably so economic pressures and uh it, I every state is different every every town has you know a different level of exposure or so on so it's some ways appropriate that that local officials have a say in in this but uh, too early an opening can be devastating and uh, I'm concerned about the, the the protest marches. It's a wonderful cause, highly just but I I am concerned that we might see a a big jump in uh, confirmed cases in the next couple of weeks.
0: Oh, yeah. Right before you came on, we were talking uh, to an epidemiologist from the Chan School of Public Health. And he's kind of saying the same thing and, and, and that it may be difficult to kind of unspool the, the things caused by the reopening from the spikes caused by the demonstrations. So, yeah, we yeah. are in that space. Well, Lawrence Wright, it's been an honor to talk to you. I've been a fan for a, a long time. You're, you do terrific stuff. However, I don't think you should be allowed to take any more suggestions from (laughs) Scott. You shouldn't be able to do anything based on Cormac McCarthy. Now, couldn't you just do like a novel now about a little cat who comes and finds a real happy home? With some really nice people.
2: Yeah, I'm getting lots of suggestions about what I ought to write next: <laughs> a woman president solves cl- climate change and you know, opens a puppy farm. Yeah, I got plenty of.
0: <laughs> it works for works for me. But for now, what we've got is the end of October, a startlingly prescient uh, novel, and one you can probably handle. As I said before, don't don't read The Road right now, but read Laure- Lawrence Wright's book, uh, The End of October. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks to everybody that I named for, before for helping us out and we will keep going this week, as we seem to always do. Waiting for life to go by Oh, is this the world
2: we created? we made it all our own Is this the world we devastated? Right to the bone, if there's a goal